This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, GYC. What is this year's theme? I couldn't hear you. That's right. Our theme this year is Acts the Revolution Continues. And what we want to do this morning is we want to look at the last book or the last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts 28. So turn there with me. And if our theme is Acts the Revolution Continues, we want to pick up where it left off in the book of Acts. So we're going to study the last book of Acts as a panel this morning. Before we start, though, I want to ask each member of our panel to briefly introduce themselves. So tell us your name and... um, where you're from? My name is Valmi Karamera, and uh, I work as uh, the assistant to the president of GYC, and I'm from Michigan. My name is Natasha Neblett, and I work in logistics, and I'm from New Mexico. I'm Michelle Lee, and I serve as the vice president of resources, and I'm from California. My name is Siku, and I am not on e-com, but... Um, I live in Michigan. I'm originally from Zimbabwe, and I want to say hi to my family. My name is Jeff Marshall. I'm the Vice President for Evangelism. I'm from the great state of Mississippi, and I want to say hi to my grandma. (laughs) All right. Thank you, everyone. Before we begin our study, why don't we open with a word of prayer? And um, Siku, could you pray for us? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Loving Father, we're so thankful for the gift of the Sabbath. We're thankful for the gift of your word. We're thankful for the many ways that you condescend to commune with us as you did through Christ. And after he left, you promised us the gift of the Holy Spirit. We ask that as we go through this study, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that he would guide our thoughts, guide our minds to understand, to comprehend the truths that you have for us today. May they have a revolutionary effect in our lives so that we can go forth and spread the revolution that you began. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Yuku. Before we dive into chapter 28 of the book of Acts, I just want to ask the panel, what do we know about the book of Acts? Because we want to set the context for our study. We don't, we don't just study the chapter in isolation. We want to know what the book of Acts is all about. Who wrote it? When was it written? So panel, tell us a little bit about what you know. It was written by Luke. Yes. And it took place in the first century AD. Where does it begin? Where does the story begin geographically? It begins in in Israel, just outside of Jerusalem. When it it first picks up and Christ is about to ascend, he's just finished his uh, ministry, which was recorded by Dr. Luke in um, the book of Luke. And then Luke kind of ends right after the crucifixion. And then... um, Acts picks up and Christ ascends to heaven and begins his ministry in heaven and all these things transpire on earth and it's beautiful. Yeah, and the great, the great promise that Jesus left us with is that the Holy Spirit would come. And, mm-hmm. and though it's titled the Acts of the, the Apostles, you could say it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit probably even more accurately. So it begins with, with in Jerusalem, right? But by the time we get to chapter 28, where are we geographically? We are in Rome. By the time, at the end of the book, we are in Rome. So there is a progression of the book from Jerusalem, Samaria, all the way to Rome. Yeah, so we're in Rome now. Why don't we go now to to chapter 28? And um, I thought what we could do is we could just look at chunks of verses and um, ask the panel for the reflections on each chunk. So let's start with verse 1 and let's read up until verse 6. So Valmi, could you read for us first? And, the, and when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Merita. And the, the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us, everyone, because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer. 
whom though he has escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffers not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. How beat they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great a while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Hmm. What's happening here in these first six verses of chapter 28? I, I think uh, to begin this narrative here in chapter 28, it kind of does, it does, it does, it does injustice to the whole story of, uh, of what happened to Paul, uh, because this is, the, this, this is his journey to, to Rome. And so I think uh, it, may not, maybe, it may be wise to just briefly touch on what was happening before, because we see Paul going all the way to Jerusalem and uh, going all the way to Rome. And uh, finally, they have a shipwreck. And what happens then is really interesting because Paul, as we recall the story, Paul tells everyone on the ship and says, anyone who stays in the ship will leave. And I think it has a lesson for us in the church that anyone who stays in the church, in a sense, Anyone who stays in the church, anyone who works in the church, I mean an organic faith, who has an organic faith and works in the church and lives in the church and also participates in the life of the church, they have hope of salvation. Okay, can I just, um, can I digress from what he was talking about a little bit? But going back to where the story is leading up from, like he was saying, they're on the ship and the ship is about to have shipwreck. And something that I noted reading the previous chapter um, is the role that Paul plays in that instance. So they're on the ship, ship is about to have shipwreck, and the captain of the ship, there's this constant looking to Paul for direction. Like, okay, Paul, what do we do? You know, and Paul gets up and says, you know, I had a dream, I had a vision, and if we stay on this ship, that we're going to be saved. You know, stay on the boat. And afterwards, you know, people want to jump off the boat. He's like, no, stay on the ship. And when we get now to chapter 28, we see this miraculous occurrence with Paul again, where they're starting a fire and, and, and the snake comes out and bites Paul, and yet nothing happens to him. And you see again this picture of first the natives were looking at Paul with with. Uh, suspicion that, oh, he must be a really bad guy, you know, because the snake bit him and he must be like a murderer. But then afterwards, when nothing happens to him, they start thinking, wow, he must be a god. And so there's a shift in their mind in the way, in their attitude towards Paul. And throughout Paul's story, at least up until this point, even though he's a prisoner in chains, you have those who are charged with taking care of him, looking to him for leadership. And now you have him on this island and he's they're thinking he's definitely a prisoner, he must be a murderer, and they go from thinking this guy is a murderer to thinking he must be a god. You know, so in spite of his physical circumstances, there's some, something in Paul, like some spirit about him that leads people to look up to him. It's, it's very telling, too, about human character, what you see here, because you see, you see people that want to connect, they're hospitable, they're very kind, and then you see them go very quickly from, from damning someone to deifying someone. And that's, and that's the human issue. You look in, in Genesis 3, what happens? Eve's trying to be as God. She wants to be deified. And, and very soon after that, what's Adam doing? He's accusing her. This is all her fault. This is all her problem. And so, so you see this, this, the human struggle is illustrated very much directly in the life of these people on this island. So how exactly are they damning Paul here in the passage? Well, they're calling him a murderer. They're saying, oh, if, he's, if, he, if this bad thing has happened to him, he must be bad. Mm-hmm. And what can we learn from, from Paul's response to these natives? I, I think it's incredible. You know, he has an incredible opportunity to say, to, to really put himself low. And we as Christians, at least me, a lot of times I'll think, you know, we... We need to be humble means to cut yourself off, to put yourself down. But he doesn't do that. He instead deflects the glory to God. So his approach to humility isn't to make himself low, it's to give God the glory. It's to ultimately share the gospel and, and show God's face through, through his life. And if I could 
that on the, on the previous angle, when they responded with the, oh, this guy's a murderer, look, the snake bit him. <laughs> he may even got off the boat, but vengeance is after him, clearly. Um, I, as I look just in my own life, at the way I react to accusations, false accusations, it's like, that's not true. You know, how often do we have this tendency to get defensive? You know, this whole group is standing around Paul, who is completely innocent, and the men are like, oh, he's a murderer. Paul doesn't even react. He just shakes the thing off into the fire, doesn't even react to it. But how often in our own life do we immediately take up, you know, <laughs> the little club and start fighting? No, I'm not. And we immediately get this defensive, and we get going back and forth, and then pretty soon we have a you know, disagreement between us, and the peace is broken, and the Spirit of Christ is lost. And we see here in Paul's life just the example of the way to respond to false accusations, and then how God then takes care of our reputation in the end. Yeah, you see a man that's close to God, mm-hmm. and then he comes close to people Yeah, in any circumstance. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to say, and I was trying to look up the text, you know where, where um, Jesus, whether it was praise or it was um, censure, he, he wasn't about defending himself. Yeah. So when it came to praise, he wasn't about defending himself. I was like, the verse I wanted to find, and you guys can help me, like where um, they're praising him, and it says that, but Jesus did not commit to them. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I should have found the verse beforehand. <laughs> because he knew what was in it. Exactly, because he knew what was in man's heart. So even when, regardless of whether it was praise or it was censure, it wasn't about him. It wasn't about, oh, I'm going to defend myself because what you're saying about me is false. And it wasn't about, oh, oh, you like me. Okay, like, let's go with this. But it, it, he was so um, not focused on himself that the praise or the censure didn't affect him. And I think that we see that person, that, that characteristic in Paul's life in this instance. And to go to Jeff's point that you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, he doesn't, he doesn't deny that God is working in his life, right? It reminds me of, like, if you do special music at church, right? And then people come up to you afterwards and like, oh, that was an awesome special music. What do you say? Say praise God. Yeah, you say praise God. You're not like, that was horrible, right? Right. You say praise God. You give God the glory. So you recognize that, that God is working through you, and you don't, you don't downplay it. Yeah, I think it's very important to do that, you know I mean? It, and not, not just in, in acute moments, but just with our lives. As, as we're living, as we're interacting with our friends, take the opportunities that come our way to say, God did this. God's blessed me. Amen. It wasn't me. I think, I think Paul really understood who he was. And I think oftentimes we suffer from uh, those things because we don't know who we are and the God we serve. Uh, And and I see Paul here understanding his true identity, that he was a servant of God, and any opportunity, any chance he had, he had to magnify God rather than himself. I found the... uh, Do you want to know where it is? Yeah. <laughs> John 2.24. Let's turn there quickly. Okay, I, okay. I want you to read that for us. All right. What's the verse again? John chapter 2, and um, the story is found in verse 24. Well, from verse 23, uh, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Mm. Wow. So can you put that in your own words? Can you flesh it out a little more? Oh, some more? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Some more. Um, I was saying like Jesus, Jesus didn't need someone else to testify of who he was. Um, and just what, what Valmi was saying earlier about, it reminded me of in Philippians chapter 2, um, that even though he was God, that he being God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, right? That he knew who he was and he had such a firm sense of his own identity, he didn't have to prove it to anybody else. He didn't have to prove that he was God in order to be God. So he was willing to put aside his godness and take upon himself, you know, human flesh and come in the form of a servant to die for our sins, being God. And yet, you know, my question is always, do you know who I am? You know, you're not going to let me into the cafeteria. Do you know who I am? And really, I'm nobody, you know. 
But God didn't have to prove anything. Jesus didn't have to prove himself. So we see a lesson about identity here in the first six verses. Why don't keep on reading? And I think we'll see more, more of Paul's reaction. Michelle, there's one, uh, one more point we can see, particularly in verse 3 and 4. Uh, the snake biting uh, Paul. And uh, we all know, we are familiar with the story of Genesis 3. You know, uh, we have this, uh, this great controversy. We have this uh, issue of sin. You know, this uh, uh, struggle uh, between Christ and the devil. And so I see here, it's almost the great controversy again reenacted. You know, but we see here that Paul has a firm confidence in Christ. That no matter what happens, because Christ sent him on this mission. He told him, you go to Rome for me. But Paul has faith in Christ that no matter what happens to him on this journey, that Christ is with him. So I think we can take a great lesson from this and say that uh, no matter what happens, so as long as our lives are truly and radically committed to God, if God has sent us, nothing can happen to us, even amidst the great controversy. Yeah, it's very, uh, this chapter kind of outlines the gospel. It starts off with this problem. You see miracles happening, then you see teachings happening, and then you see some people accepting the teachings, some people rejecting them. And then you see Paul's ultimately successful despite his circumstances. And, of course, we all know you're, he You're dies. getting ahead of... Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Let's keep reading. Um, Jeff, could I actually have you read verses 7 through, 7 through 10? In the same quarters were possessions of the chief men of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux, and to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had disease in the island came and were healed, who also honored us with many honors. And when they departed, they laded us with much things as were necessary. Oh, I was gonna, just going to say, Michelle, as I, as I uh, think about the previous passage and then the one we just read, just together, um, what just really strikes me is that the people reacted to the miracle of the viper biting Paul, and that's what made them associate him with um, deity. They figured, oh, this man must be a god. Now, of course, obviously they were uneducated, so they thought Paul himself was a god. He didn't, like, aggressively rebuttal them at that moment, but then he went on to then show in his behavior in going and ministering to others, in, um, in healing the people, what the character of God, in, in a sense, was like, because they had associated him with deity, and it was because he had not died when the, the viper bit him. And I think that today we have the same thing. Even though we don't have miracles happening, like, you know, some super poisonous snake bites us and then we shake it off and, oh, we're fine, at the same time, we do have the viper miracle in our own lives. Um, because, hearkening back to what Valmy was saying, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we have this um, analogy of a serpent and the human race. And the human race is suffering from the venom of the serpent. And yet, the miracle of Christ is that we don't have to die, even though the viper has bitten us through the grace of Christ. And that is what associates us with divinity, with what helps the watching world to see this person must be associated with God. The Viper miracle. I think that is such a good point, mm. Tasha. That, keep that. Yeah, that's a that's a key point. Something that I notice when I read when I read about Paul's time in Malta is that people there are really nice to him, right? It says in verse seven that um, Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days, and then when Paul leaves the island, they honored us with many marks of respect, which is what is written here. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. What do you guys think of this, this kindness that Paul is encountering? I think this kindness is actually reflected in the, almost, uh, in the last uh, two chapters also. You can also go to, all the way to chapter 27. And you see there also in uh, verse 3 that Paul still encounters this, this kindness. But also I think it's how Paul treated others. That because Paul respected him himself, others also respected him. What does it mean to respect yourself? Can you clarify? I think uh, first it begins with what we already we have uh, outlined that Paul understood who he was. 
he understood who he was in society. He understood who he was in terms of the mission he had. So he understood himself as a minister of the gospel. And uh, when he encountered these criminals, as to say, who were going to Rome, Paul didn't behave in any way, but he saw, uh, he saw it as an opportunity to witness for Christ, to stand for Christ. And as Siku uh, began saying, Paul turned this situation. He was a prisoner turned into a commander. He started giving direction on how things should go. So you see a Paul who understood himself. And I think he found his identity in, uh, in Christ, as we know the story of Paul. He, and I think as we find our identity also in Christ, we understand what it means to respect ourselves. I think just, um, I guess the, the not flip side, but side to go with that is sometimes though even when you when you treat others well you don't necessarily get that reciprocated kindness um but the thing that struck me in this passage was that heathens can be kind too i think sometimes we ascribe good qualities just to oh you have to be a christian to be kind you have to be a christian to give and all these things um the one thing that you can't do and not be a christian is you can't be saved <laughs> you know like you can't be saved without Jesus. And that was going to be my question, is what, what makes us different then? Right. I mean, you can't be saved without Jesus. Some people will be saved without knowing that it was Jesus who saved them. But Jesus is, is, is the one thing that you can't do. You can't, put, you, can't, you can't put on airs of selflessness without having Christ dwelling within you. But you can still do acts of kindness. You know, you can still do good things. And you see these heathens treating Paul with kindness, courtesy, um, even though they are not believers, so to speak. Let's keep on reading um, verses 11 through 16. So now we're going to shift from from, um, Paul being in Malta, and he's treated very kindly, courteously, as we've been talking about. Um, to, to maybe a place that's a little more hostile. And Jeff, you, kind of, you were kind of getting to this point. Um, so let's, let's read verses 11 through, through 16. And Natasha, could I have you read that for us? Sure. And after three months, we departed in a ship of Alexandria, which had wintered in the isle, whose sign was Castor and Pollux. And landing at Syracuse, we tarried there three days. And from thence we fetched a compass and came to Regium, And after one day, the south wind blew, and we came the next day to Petoliae, where we found brethren and were desired to tarry with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. And from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as a pie forum and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners into into the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with the soldiers that kept him. So we see that Paul is now leaving Malta and he's headed towards Italy. And something that struck me when I read this passage, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is that when, when Paul is in Malta, we forget for a second that he's a prisoner because he's being treated so courteously and he's the central figure in this whole story. But now we realize that he's, on this, he's actually on a, on a ship and he's a prisoner. He's being taken somewhere by someone else. What do, you, what do you think is happening here? I think looking at the life of Paul, because we know when he was in Corinth, he wrote to, to Rome. He wrote to the church in Rome. And he had desire to go to Rome, but he could not go there. And to find himself going to Rome as a prisoner, it just tells you how somehow, sometimes how God works. That even in someone's suffering, God may be accomplishing a great work. You see Paul here, he's going to Rome, he's in, he's in chains. He had desire, you find it actually, if you, you look at Romans 15, quickly here, Romans 15, verse uh, 20. Romans 15, 20, Yes. Right? Do I have it right? 24, 24. If you read from uh, 24, you can start from 20 in your spare time. But from 24, he says, Whosoever I take my journey into Spain. So here, Paul wanted to go to Spain. But going to Spain, he wanted to get some, some funds from Rome. And he's unable to go to Rome. So he writes them the book of Rome, Romans. 
He writes them the book of Romans. And so to find that Paul actually eventually went to Rome as a prisoner, it just testifies to, to, to the workings of God that even really I can be suffering, but God may be accomplishing a great work. So it goes to, the, to test what the Bible says, that, that all things truly work out for the good for those who believe in God. So as long as my life anyone's life is truly committed to God, no matter what can happen to me, I know that in the end, God is in charge. And you can see here that God reached the Roman Empire. He reached Caesar through Rome, uh, through Paul, Paul as a prisoner. <laughs> Go ahead, speak Me? Okay. <laughs> um, just, it's just, just going off of that, in, in terms of all things working together for good, in verse 15... Uh, verse 16, when we came to Rome, Centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul, this is in contrast to how the other prisoners were treated, says, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. The special treatment that Paul received, and I was reading in Acts of the Apostles where um, a commentary on this, and she says how if you read previous chapters when he stands before Festus and Agrippa, and then chapter 27 in, in the whole journey and the, the impression that the centurion had of him, that they had such a good report to give of Paul. Agrippa himself said, if, if it was up to me, I would have released this guy. I find no fault in him. And so by the time he gets to Rome, there's such a good report of him that he gets this special treatment, that he's allowed to live in, this, in these special quarters with one uh, soldier attached to him. And so that God, even in, in the interactions that Paul was having all the way until he gets to Rome, it was a setup so that when he gets to Rome, he has this house where he can entertain people and preach the gospel to them in relative freedom for being a prisoner. Uh, on, uh, just another angle on that, Michelle. Um, if you read through the book of Acts and you, you study the, the life of Paul and his missionary journeys and that, things like that, he made many references to wanting to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. And he would go a place and he would say, after he told them on his last journey to Jerusalem, he said, after I go to Jerusalem, I have to go to Rome. Well, he did go to Rome, but he was a prisoner. But you can see, like, Paul had a dream of going to Rome and then he finds himself in chains as he's being led into the city. And that's like really, like Valmi said, in, in one way all things work together for good, but from a very human standpoint, that'd be a very disappointing thing. Mm -hmm. It's like I have dreamed for so many years of coming and evangelizing in the city of Rome, and look, I'm tied to a soldier. Mm -hmm. And I can't go anywhere the way I want. I can't go through the streets. I can't reach out to people. And yet you see his you see that, so I guess you see his human side, but you see that these brethren, they hear Paul is coming. They've never necessarily met him, but they hear he's coming. They come down looking for him, and when they find him and they're rejoicing, it says that Paul thanked God and took courage. You see, like, the, the human side of leaders, that they're not gods, like Paul was, you know, called earlier in the chapter. They need encouragement. They need, and, and when they receive that love and that um, encouragement, it blesses their heart and they take courage. Yeah, it brings it down to earth. It brings Paul down to earth, right? And it reminds us as leaders, and I think we're all leaders in one capacity or another, to keep it real. Like, we're not, we don't have to be demigods. No, we don't. It's interesting also to see the, the pioneering spirit of Paul because uh, as Romans 15 goes on to, uh, to explain, to explain uh, Paul was going to Rome because he was running out of territory. He was running out of places to preach. And he said, I want to go to places where no man has been. And I think that's really encouraging that actually God ends up taking him to places no man has ever been for him as a prisoner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let, let's actually finish, finish reading this chapter. Um, why don't we read up until 22 and then we can read the rest of the chapter after we discuss that short portion. Um, Siku, can I have you read 17 through 22? Sure. Um, from verse 17. And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, would have let me go, because there was no cause of death in me. 
But when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar, not that I had ought to accuse my nation of. For this cause therefore have I called for you, to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And they said unto him, We neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Paul is now in Rome, but he's, who is he talking to? Is he talking to Gentiles? He's actually talking to Jews in Rome, right? Yeah. What, what does he say to them? I find it interesting, verse 20, he says, For the hope of Israel, I'm bound with this chain. He didn't seek out to point fingers, you know, to, to blame others for his misfortune. But rather, he took it as an opportunity to say, I'm suffering this for the sake of Christ. And I think, uh, what a great privilege. It could be for all of us that whenever misfortune comes to our way, we could say, it's because of the gospel that I'm suffering this. And it's, it's amazing, Paul's attitude, attitude towards even suffering. Let me, let me back up for a second, though. What, what is Paul's point in talking to these Jews? I think he wanted to witness to them as well. He, he wanted to, 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 to lead them. As you can see uh, in, uh, in, the, in the next verses, he says, Paul, uh, the Bible says that Paul started almost explaining the entire scriptures from Genesis Telling them, telling them from the prophets, from the, uh, from the uh, Moses. He, he told them about Christ, about this hope that he had. And so I think he wanted to witness to them, to invite them to embrace what he had uh, accepted as well. Had these Jews heard of him before? Yeah. Uh, uh, well, apparently so. they had heard of him, but apparently they had not heard official negative reports about him. Yeah. They did know that Christianity was not popular. How do we know that? Because they, they said so. that this... this <laughs> Quote, unquote, this sect is spoken, you know, is spoken evil of all over. But at the same time, they were like, we want to know what you, what, what you think. And they said, we haven't received anything specifically about you. And they're open to, like, hear what he had to say. And I think to, to um, the credit of Paul, the way that he addresses them is what struck me in this section. He's talking to the leaders of the Jews. And like Valmy was saying, he didn't go on and on about the abuses that he had suffered. And he could have because he had suffered a lot of abuses. But if I could give one word to describe this portion of Paul's um, speech, it would be tact. He exercised tact, and that tact led to a place where they said, hey, you know what? We don't know a lot about this Christianity thing. We know people don't like you guys, but you seem like a decent bloke. Uh, nice guy. <laughs> and, and we're curious why you would be a Christian when you seem like a really nice guy. So the way that Paul addressed them, instead of accusing the Jewish people and, and going on and on about all y'all, you know, this is what you did to me, he, he said things in a way that made them curious to know how come you believe this stuff. Yeah. And he set himself up for evangelism. Paul, Paul's respecting authority even when he doesn't agree with it. And, that, and I think that's really important to know yeah. as a Christian, and he, he's respecting these chief of the Jews to, to get together and to really, to really put his case before them. And then, and then the way he interacts with them then gives them a contrast. Well, we've, we've heard this about this sect that you're with, but now we've seen you, and we've got to work this out in our heads. Yeah, just as a side note, I think like the comments you guys have about tact and the way that Paul is interacting with these Jews who disagree with him, and then Valmy's comment all the way in the beginning about the ship and not, not jumping outside of the ship, which could be a representation of the church. We see that the book of Acts can tell us so much about our interactions with the church and the way that we should relate to the church. No, I think uh, especially as young people you know, who are passionate for ministry, it is, uh, it is uh, imperative that we respect our church leaders, work with our church leaders, because even all this, Paul still worked within the church. You know, because we are still saved within the church. Let's keep reading. Let's finish the chapter and see where, where Paul's tact gets him. Um, so, Valmy, could I have you read verses 23 through 30? Sure. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus 
both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto the people and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they crossed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and, and that they will hear it. And when they had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great reasoning among themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him. It says that they set a day for Paul to present his case. And so we see that maybe Paul's tact is actually what enables him to preach the gospel to these Jews. That's how important it is in this chapter. What, what does Paul say to the Jews when he has this opportunity? Well, all day, from morning to night, it indicates. Hmm. He took the scriptures, the scriptures that they were familiar with, the writings starting from the writings of Moses, whom they had tremendous respect for, and begins to show them Jesus Christ all the way from the beginning of the Word of God. And some of them agree with him, and some of them don't agree with him, and they get, they get talking amongst themselves. And I think if you go all the way to verse 25, and as Paul is expounding to them the Scriptures, and you, realize, you see that they heard, they saw, but still they didn't believe. It's, it's really neat, his, his response to those who are left with him. He quotes Isaiah, which, which is fascinating because he's quoting, he's quoting a passage that Jesus quoted as well in very similar circumstances. So this passage actually comes up three times in the Bible then? Yes, absolutely. It's in um, Matthew 13, I believe. Let's turn there. I'll just give you a bit of what's going on in the story. That Jesus has been speaking with in parables, and the disciples are wondering, why, why are you doing this? Why do you keep doing this? Just speak straight. And um, verse 13 is where it starts. And it's his answer to his disciples. He says, Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. And now listen to this. This is, this is incredible. Jesus says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see those things. Jesus says, he, he, he makes a statement that implies a question. Isaiah said, your eyes, your ears, and, and it should go to your heart. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, blessed are your eyes, blessed are your ears with the implied question, what about your heart? And right after that, he gives the parable of the sower, which is a parable exactly. about the heart. Exactly. About the heart. So, so let's bring this down to earth a bit. What does it mean for, for us to have eyes and ears? But, you know, how, how is that different from the heart? I think here we see that truly intent of the heart is always, comes always before the content. The, the attitude of the heart, you know, the, 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 how your heart is, does my heart really want to know the truth? If truly my heart wants to know the truth, God will lead me, you know. And we can be Seventh-day Adventists. We had all the, uh, the, the prophecies. We know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But still our hearts are closed. So I think it's, uh, it, it's crucial that our hearts be open. Otherwise, we can see, we can hear, but that will do nothing. It's like his, his, his eyes, eyes and ears are only, they only give you the ability to make a choice, which then affects your heart. And, and, and so the eyes and the ears are the way we perceive things with our mind, 
that then we have to make a choice with, and then that's going to do something in the heart for, for good or for bad. So, so, it's, oh, so it's possible to, to have all this information deposited in your, in your eyes and ears and whatever, but then your heart not to actually receive the information and to be transformed by it. And it's kind of like when we do Bible study, the reason we pray in the beginning, why do we pray even? We ask for the Holy Spirit, but we also ask that the Lord would give us obedience to the things that he reveals to us. And that's the heart work. That's right. And I think that's one of the things that, as, as young people, can be the plague of our generation. Because we grow up with so much information, and we grow up hearing the prophecies, and we grow up knowing that Jesus is coming soon. And we grow up with all this information that, like Jesus said in Matthew, he's like, listen, prophets and great men have wanted to know the things you know. And then he kind of ends and lets you think about that. We grew up with so much information, information that the rest of the world is dying for, but has it gotten down into our hearts? Has it really changed us? Like, like Justin was talking about last night, have we settled? Have we just gotten to the point, it's like, yeah, I know all this, and because I know Daniel 13, surely I'll be saved. Not Daniel 13, but you know, <laughs> Daniel has only 12 chapters, but you know, just because I know the prophecies, because I'm familiar with Revelation, surely it's going to go well with me. Yeah, Paul's not quoting this just by chance. Oh, I'm going to pick a scripture. He's quoting this because his whole goal, it's not, it's not words and it's not miracles, it's your heart. And he, I mean, he says that, where is it? Verse 27. And understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. I mean, he, he, the, the importance, he's, he's quoting Isaiah here saying, the whole point is to change the heart. And that's how, I mean, that's how Paul's ending his ministry. Mm-hmm. What about the heart? It, it's possible to find security in having all this information, right? But isn't that the condition of Laodicea itself? Is we believe we have it all, but we don't actually have that heart conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're running out of time, so I, I just wanted to talk about the last verse here um, because I think it's significant. This is, this is the very last verse of the entire chapter of Acts. And I want us to dwell on it for a second. Um, in, my, in my version, let me just read it to you quickly. It says, um, Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. I just kind of want to know what other words um, you have there instead of unhindered if you have different versions. Mine says no man forbidding him, which is really interesting since he's a prisoner. Mm-hmm. Same thing. That's what my version also says. Mm-hmm. So, what does it? How is it possible for you to be a prisoner but be unhindered? It, whatever, whatever Paul understands—not just with his eyes and ears, but with his heart—puts him in a situation where circumstances cannot hinder him. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. So we have no excuse. None. Even in this day, yes. I think to just taking verse 31 where it talks about preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus, the, the active verbs, verbs are always active, the verbs there, you know, preaching and teaching, it's that these activities go on unhindered in spite of Paul's physical circumstances. So that the preaching and the teaching of the gospel continues and it's almost as if Paul is not, the, the preaching and the teaching of the gospel is not restricted or limited by Paul's circumstance. The gospel is going to move forward regardless, this being the last verse, regardless of what happens to Paul after this, question mark, question mark, if all we had was the book of Acts, regardless, the gospel is going to go forward. Whether he ends up dying two years later, which, okay, whatever happens after this, we know for sure that the gospel will go forward unhindered. I also find it interesting, you know, the, the, the choice of words we use always reveal uh, uh, so much about ourselves. And so it's interesting that Luke chooses this particular word to end the entire book of Acts. So if you think everything that happened in the book of Acts, and Paul ends with this word, I mean, Luke ends with this word, unhindered. Nothing really could hinder the progress, the rise and the progress of the early church. And even today, it continues because it is truly unhindered. Continues. You know, how do we connect? That, that word caught my attention because our theme is the revolution continues. How do we connect all of what we've been talking about to our theme, the revolution continues? We see, we see that there's a clear continuation of something, right? Right. But, but let's look at the word revolution itself. Is there, what is the revolution? Is there a revolution? If I can ask that question. 
No, as I, I was thinking about the, the, this concept of revolution, and um, revolution comes from the root word being revolt. And for there to be a revolution, you need to be revolting against something. And usually it's used in a political context, so you have two political systems or two ideologies, and a revolution is you're revolting against a particular ideology. And scripturally speaking, um, again, Matthew chapter 12, for instance, where Jesus talks about these two kingdoms, and they're accusing him of casting out demons by Beelzebub. And he says, hey, if I'm casting out demons by Beelzebub, it wouldn't make sense for a kingdom to be divided against itself, right? So we actually represent two different kingdoms here. I represent the kingdom of God, and there's another kingdom that is in domination on this earth that is not my kingdom. Even when he was being arrested and he's like, you know, if when he was standing before Pilate, he's like, if, this, if, if my kingdom was an earthly kingdom, then would my disciples fight? But my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. There are different principles by which my kingdom is governed. And so Christ represents this revolt against Satan's kingdom. Um, and it, it, can, I, can I turn to a text? Okay. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 and... Let me go there. Reading from verse 12... And, and we know this scripture, we use it in great controversy studies. Um, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? And then it says, for thou, didst, the, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend about, apart, above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And contrasting that with Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, where he comes down, 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 down. It's not about me. It doesn't matter what my, the, what, what my position is being God, but I'm willing to lay that aside for the sake of others. It's all about others, 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 a love that gives. That being the principle of God's kingdom, love. Whereas in Satan's kingdom, it's all about me. Hmm. So that the Christian revolution is embodied in that idea of it's not about me letting go of self, as, even as we see in the life of Paul, but it's about others. I want to share the gospel because I want others to see Jesus. I want others' lives to be changed. So Jesus himself was exemplified the revolution. Jesus, Jesus is the essence of the revolution. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, Paul, Paul doesn't see himself as starting a revolution. He sees himself as continuing a revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it will and, continue beyond him. No, I, I, and I think uh, it's what uh, West Pepper was saying this morning. You know, the root of the book of Acts goes all the way to the Gospels, you know, with uh, John the Baptist and everyone. But the, the, the center and the foundation of this revolution is Christ. Because the entire book of Acts testifies of the work of Christ. Mm. And so the work of Christ is truly unhindered and can never and will never be unhindered. Mm. So I think what you're saying, Valmi, is that, that when we look at the book of Acts, it's not that a revolution begins in Acts, right? Because when I, think, when I first started thinking of the theme, I was like, Acts, the revolution continues. Okay, so there's a revolution in Acts, and we're continuing that revolution. But we actually realize that Acts itself is a continuation of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Can, I, can I share a quote from um, Christ's Object Lessons? It's in chapter 12, the first paragraph. Talking about Jesus, he says, Not for himself... But for others, he lived and thought and prayed. He says, From hours spent with God, he came forth morning by morning to bring the light of heaven to men. Daily he received, daily Jesus received a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I was thinking about the book of Acts, as Jeff was saying right at the beginning, that Acts of the Holy Spirit. You see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit right there at the beginning. Not because, and, and, and that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, just like in Christ's life on a day-to-day basis, he received an outpouring of the Holy Ghost, which empowered him to be the revolution that he was. And you see that continued into the Church of Acts, and it grows and expands. Yeah, so there's actually a continuation between Jesus' life and, and the book of Acts. It's not that Acts is starting something completely new. Mm-hmm. And that's why, Michelle, if you live the principles of the kingdom of God, 
That's why you are unhindered. Because when you meet obstacles, it only gives you an opportunity to go lower. And we see to that surrender, in Paul's life. to submit to Christ, to be others centered instead of me. When you're me oriented and you hit an obstacle, there's a major problem. Mm-hmm. If you're others oriented and you hit an obstacle, it's an opportunity to give. Mm-hmm. Uh, to others, and you're unhindered. You cannot be hindered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus came into a selfish world and taught and illustrated that sacrifice succeeds. And I think that's the true definition of the revolution. When you look at the life of Christ, he was selfless, and no other religious leader had ever done such a thing. And it, it's because of that that Christianity continues on, because Christ truly lived what is a revolution. Amen. Christ lived a revolutionary life, and we can have that revolution in our own lives. I just want to end our our great Sabbath school discussion this morning by reading a quote from from, um, Ellen White's writings. It's in Letters to South Africa, and um, she writes, The Lord Jesus has given man an example in his own life, as we were talking about. For the selfish heart of sin, he gives the new heart of love. He changes the heart and produces an entire revolution in the soul. He brings light out of darkness, love out of enmity, and holiness out of impurity, that those who believe in Christ may represent Christ's life and character to the world. When I think of the word revolution, I think of um, a complete turning around, a 360 degrees. And we saw that Christ did that in his own life. He went against everything that was in the world. Um, and for us as well, we can, we can have that victory, we can have that revolution in our own lives. So to close our Sabbath School panel, um, thank you for your participation. I'd like Jeff to, to pray to close, and then after that we'll have a special music. Shall we bow our heads? Dear God, we want our life to be unhindered. We want nothing in our life to hinder you from having your way with us. Help us to be this, this sacrificial person that you've called us to be. And God, we hope and recognize and believe that, that you're willing to affect the world unhindered by anything that can happen to us. You're willing to affect the world around us. We look to you for these ends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.